Welcome to the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast. I'm Beth Shank, host of the podcast, along with our guest host, Dr. Shanda Demarest. Dr. Demarest is interviewing faculty members and educators from the School of Nursing Commitment from all across the nation. Today, Shanda talks with Dr. Lisa Thompson of Emory University. Dr. Thompson has been a long-term researcher on indoor air quality around the world. On this podcast, she also brings in her focus on plastics, relating it to both air quality and climate change. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. Shanda Demarest here with the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast, coming in for the special series, talking with faculty from the Nurses Climate Challenge. So today's all about air pollution. Um, big problem, obviously, according to the World Health Organization, about, well, just, just under two and a half billion people a year are exposed to dangerous levels of household air pollution, things like polluting open fires or, or simple stoves for cooking. Um, the combined effects of ambient air pollution, so what's outdoors, and that household air pollution actually contributes to about 7 million premature deaths a year. So this is this is actually the deadliest health impact um, from climate change. Gary Cohen, founder of Healthcare Without Harm, the organization I work with, I've, I've heard him say more than once that air pollution leads to more deaths annually than AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria combined. And we're, we're not sort of, you know, comparing deadly events or deadly situations here, but just for context, um, I Googled right before I hit recording here and... Um, so far since COVID-19 hit the scene, there have been 630 million total cases of COVID and um, 6.59 million deaths. So air pollution and the destruction that it has on our global population is, is quite profound. So the conversation I have today uh, with Dr. Lisa Thompson sheds a lot of light on this and some of the work that she's up to. Dr. Thompson is an environmental health scientist and an associate professor at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. She has appointments both in the Nell Hodgson's Woodruff School of Nursing and in the Rowlands School of Public Health. Her research is all about reducing those household air pollutants, so the indoor air pollutants from solid fuel cookstoves in low resource countries. She has received funding from the U.S. Agency for International Development, the National Institute for Health, the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, and I love to lift up Lisa's work because she is a terrific example of a nurse researcher combining her passion and her skills at the intersection of environmental health, climate change, health equity, and just her love for people and her love for the world. Um, I will give the spoiler alert that today I learned what a London fog actually is. And it's not a $7 tea latte. So Dr. Thompson tells us a little bit more about that. Thank you for joining. 
continue to uh, share these episodes with folks you think who may be interested. And um, thanks for joining us in the Nurses Climate Challenge and all ways that nurses can be climate champions. Dr. Lisa Thompson, thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast. Thank you very much, Anna. So I've been looking forward to talking with you for a long time. Um, there, there are many things that you do in your role at Emory and beyond, um, but I think I'd like to open up today with what seems to be kind of the core of your environmental health science work and the core of you as a nurse. Um, you seem to me to be all about preventing the health damages from uh, from indoor pollutants and folks in under-resourced countries. And check me on that. Does that does that feel right? And tell me a little bit more about how in the world you got to that as the core of, of what your professional work is. Yeah, sure. Um, well, let me just start off by saying that um, I uh, am a nurse and a family nurse practitioner, and I work for many years at a clinic in, in uh, Oakland called La Clinica de la Raza. And I was working with patients primarily from Latin America and uh, a lot of kids with asthma. And I became interested in case managing um, what were contributing factors to the, the asthma. So I just started to make home visits. And when I made these home visits, even though I was just like an empty slate to what air pollution was and why it was a problem. I noticed that a lot of the kids lived by Oakland uh, port where there was a lot of uh, ship and trucking traffic. And uh, they lived in homes that had uh, uh, carpets or mold or things like that. So I became aware of air pollution, both indoors and out. Um, I didn't, think much about it, but I applied to uh, a public health program at Berkeley and got into this environmental health sciences master's and PhD program. And it was there that I was approached by my advisor about a project in Guatemala related to cook stoves. I had no idea what he was talking about, um, but he was talking about people who cook over open fires three times a day because that's what they have. And these open fires are, are wood burning stoves or they could be burning animal dung. They could be burning a crop residue, coal, charcoal. I'd never been in an environment where I'd seen this except for of course your July 4th barbecue. Um, but here I was uh, working in these environments for the first time and, and, and thinking about how these massive amounts of air pollution people are exposed to contribute to respiratory disease. Specifically, we're looking at childhood pneumonia. Yikes. Um, that's, that's my, I guess, experience with oh, yeah, not even wood stoves, but like campfires, like you say, hanging out in the, in the backyard or, or even going camping and, I've only ever done that in an outdoor environment, not not in an indoor environment. Are the folks that um, you first encountered uh, these sort of methods of cooking, that's happening, is it mostly inside or outside? Where are people getting exposed to the air pollutants for the most part? 
Yeah, it depends on the type of region. We chose to do our project in the highlands of Guatemala where the these wood stoves are used not only for cooking, but heating because it's colder. Sure. And so they're a little bit at altitude. And um, so these are literally what they call three stone fires, which, you know, three stones. And then you put logs inside the stones and you're inside your kitchen and it's on the floor and you're burning your wood to cook your food. And they prop up little grills and they put their pots and uh, teapots and stuff on top of that. Some people have platform stoves, which are actually on platforms covered with sand. So they're kind of higher up. People can stand up to cook. And some of these stoves are indoors and outdoors. You know, not everybody sleeps in the same room with a cooking fire. They do build outdoor structures. Um, and then our project back in 2002, we were actually in installing wood stoves with chimneys. So they actually, you think about the way our great grandmothers cooked with, you know, those pot belly stoves made out of cast iron, those big black stoves that, you know, back in the 1800s, this yeah. is the way we cooked. And so these are, we, we didn't build those types of stoves. They were built out of Adobe, but they had the same chimney stove and kind of closed off. So you could keep the smoke vented outside instead of inside. So that was kind of the, the stove that we were studying to see if it reduced air pollution. Hmm. Okay. So, I mean, it sounds like the chimneys are are one way to prevent folks from being exposed to the smoke. I, I want to get back a little bit. What's happening for folks who are breathing in, whether indoor or outdoor, um, you know, pollutants from from these cook stoves? You mentioned ammonia. What else? And what are the populations that are kind of like most messed up by exposure to the smoke? Yeah. Well, a lot of, I mean, first of all, um, if, if women are pregnant and they're breathing this uh, air pollution, they're breathing uh, particulate matter, which is kind of like what you, you know, what you see when you're building your cook stove, that billowing smoke, but what, what actually is harming them are the teeny tiny particles that you can't see that they breathe in almost like a gas. Um, and then there's also carbon monoxide and there's carcinogens. Um, my former advisor liked to say it's it's like everything in a cigarette except the nicotine, if you, you know. So it's like pregnant women smoking the equivalent of a half pack to a pack cigarette today, you know, because they're breathing in the smoke in the room. Um, and so uh, that could cause, you know, fetal problems like small birth weight, uh, preterm birth, um, for the most part, we've we've looked at those outcomes, um, small head circumference, and then the children that are born at mostly looking at pneumonia and then stunting. There's been studies uh, during the Industrial Revolution, you know, when there was a lot of, I mean, you know, what we call London fog. People, you know, the nice coats, you know, the, there's these raincoats called London fog, but they're really actually um, in the olden days, London fog was actually London smog. So it's the mix of drizzle, drizzle rain and air pollution from the coal fire plants in London. And so, um, you know, they've done studies where they've looked at uh, this kind of air pollution and its effect on stunting of children. So they're constantly breathing this smoke and small children in the, are typically in the kitchen with their mothers. And so they may have um, stunting. Um, they've also looked at high blood pressure in women. So blood pressure changes, 
cardiovascular uh, effects like heart attacks and strokes. Most of these have been done in large epidemiologic studies and in, in, in industrial countries like the US where they have millions of people that they can follow and then they can predict a risk of stroke or cardiovascular um, disease. But I mean, in these studies that we do with hundreds of people, we'll never be able to measure those types of things because those events are rare, thankfully. So um, we mostly looked at things like birth weight or stunting, things that we can measure and see a more of an acute effect. Um, as opposed to one of those long-term cancers also been implicated with household air pollution. Those things take a lot of time to develop. So the evidence isn't so great for those long-term outcomes. Mm, oh my. Um, <laughs> also, I, I learned that a London fog is not only a beverage that you get at the coffee shop. That's the only context in which I have heard it. Ew, uh, terrible. So, um, yeah, drink some smog in your cup. Uh, yikes. Yeah, no kidding. So, okay. So I heard moms, pregnant women, their, their unborn fetus, little kiddos, you know, folks exposed to this, all sorts of issues, a uh, big problem. So you talked about one intervention um, being sort of rerouting the smoke outside of the home. You, you mentioned the chimney, but in your studies and in your work in, you know, in, in some of the global South and beyond, what other interventions are you, um, you know, encouraging? Yeah. Like, like tell me more about what some of the solutions are to this challenge. Well, the, the, so we're actually, I'm working with a, a group right now with the American Thoracic Society to come up with kind of a consensus paper on this topic because we recently finished this trial called the HAPIN trial, the Household Air Pollution Intervention Trial. And it was in Rwanda, India, Guatemala, and Peru. And we uh, randomized 3,200 3, women to receive either a liquid petroleum gas stove and free fuel for 18 months from pregnancy to the first year of the child's life, or to continue using these solid fuel stoves only because the evidence was not conclusive from these chimney stove studies that everybody's been doing. So they said, well, why not try a cleaner fuel? Because the chimney stoves basically just push the smoke out and it goes into the next door neighbor's house. So try, try this uh, LPG stove, which, um, we, we did for about five years and we just published, I think it was maybe three weeks ago, an article in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, looking at the effects of the stove on low birth weight. Uh, we did reduce air pollution considerably. Uh, people really liked their liquid petroleum gas stove. They used it, um, because first of all, it's, it was free. The fuel was free. Uh, it's fast, right? I mean, when we think about barbecuing your, you know, your breakfast versus going out and clicking a stove, it was fast. It saved women time. Um, they liked it because their kitchen was clean and didn't their clothes didn't smell like smoke. Um, but it didn't make a difference on birth weight. It didn't show an effect um, mm. on that large study. So we're all kind of scratching our head about that. Um, but uh, Part of what we're discussing is what's next. I mean, if you do a huge trial, you give people a clean gas stove and you don't see an effect, 
what's the next alternative for, for very poor people living in rural communities um, that aren't tied into electricity. So they don't have a reliable electricity in places like India and Bangladesh, you have regular brownouts. You can predict at two o'clock, it's going out and it's out for three hours. So the grid's not there. Solar energy is great, but you can't, there's no battery backup. So you have a nice solar panel on your roof, but it doesn't have a good enough battery to allow you to cook. You, people need to cook when they need to cook, right? We need to eat like right now. Yeah. If you've yeah. got a kid yeah. screaming, you've got to heat the milk or, you know, so it's a problem that right now we're kind of unsure of the solution. Um, but geothermal, solar, electric, those are clean. And we, I don't know if you've read the, some of the studies, I mean, in the U S people are saying switch from gas to electricity. You know, we all love gas. It's great. It, it cooks great, but it actually has byproducts. Indoor air pollutants, right? Yeah. yeah. It's indoor air pollution, right? You've got other things coming off the gas that is not so good. Now it didn't, the gas stove in these, in these estate didn't make things worse. It just didn't make a difference. You know, I, this is so complicated because, you know, when we talk about alternatives, like you say, unless it's solar and geothermal with battery backup so that folks are able to have access to these resources when they need them, there are still human health effects from burning gas. There are still greenhouse gas emissions, obviously, associated from petroleum products. And, and you know, going back to the battery piece, there are minerals and resources oh, extracted yeah. that are rare in nature that perhaps some of these same communities are being harmed or the environments in which they live are, are you know, are being harmed. So I, I'm hearing some, some Maslow's hierarchy of needs here. Like you got to feed your families um, right. as as ground, you know, at the ground floor. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's gotten so complicated that, um, I've actually, um, you know, in recent years, and I want to just switch to where I am right now, I think I've come uh, around to a different focus. And part of what was happening, um, was that I was in Guatemala, you know, for the past 20 years, and I'd go in and sit in people's kitchens for hours and hours and watch them cook, talk to them about cooking, study cooking, you know. And I noticed that people were throwing their plastic into the kitchen fire. Um, they were, you know, maybe um, opening up a bag of salt and throwing the plastic into the fire and then opening up the, uh, you know, uh, opening up the water bottle or the oil bottles out, they'd throw that in the fire. People would start hoarding plastic and I would ask them, what are you doing? And they'd say, I use this to get my fire going. It burns hot. I can start my fire. Um, so the purposes were one, to get rid of all that plastic that they don't know what to do with. And the second is they're actually using it as a fuel. So I started going kind of off on the idea of why are we inundating poor communities in the global South with plastic to the point that they don't know what to do with it. And so sometimes if, if you travel places and you look around, you go, God, this is so polluted and nasty. Look at all this trash on the ground. What are these people doing to their environment? And the fact is they they, have, they can't do anything with it because there's no trash pickup. Of course. 
And they're just dumping where they can. They're burning in their backyard. They're burning in their kitchen fire. And so these poor communities are being blamed for all this plastic that's going into the ocean. When the truth is the petroleum companies are making profit off of plastic and plastic packaging is becoming increasingly more complicated. I mean, you don't need just one thing of plastic now. It needs to be wrapped up in three things of plastic. And they're shipping these plastic things to countries where people are having these single-use plastic problems or everything has turned into plastic. Plastic plates, plastic water bottles, plastic containers, plastic shoes, plastic toys. And you go into these markets now and everything is plastic. Yeah. And they're it's cheap. They buy it and then they're stuck with it. And so... Our, our new project that we're about a year and a half into is thinking about what to do with all of that plastic in these communities in rural Guatemala. In your experience, are you seeing any of that? And I know you're public health, but in Guatemala or, or other nations that you visit, are you seeing some of that plastic um, inundation happen in healthcare too? What does that look like? Um, actually, I would say that to a lesser degree, um, their people, for instance, ha they're still using the autoclave. Um, and even in small clinics, they'll have an autoclave where they have deliveries. Um, they will reuse the, um, the clothing. So they do not have uh, disposable clothing, right? So they, they have their own uh, uniforms or even surgical gowns or cloth that they'll then wash. Um, they'll autoclave in aluminum um, containers instead of using those blue wraps that are made out of um, PPE. They're, it's plastic essentially. It's you know it's it looks like cloth but it's plastic. Um, they'll reuse things. So you know if what we have the big problem we have here in the U.S. is you get a kit, a suture kit, and it's got all these things in it, and you maybe use the uh, staple remover and the rest is just in the trash. Totally. Right. I mean, so there it's like, well, no, they'll have the staple removers that are autoclaved, the, this, you know, the scissors are autoclaved, the tweezers are autoclaved. And so all of those things will keep getting used until they need to be, um, you know, re, uh, reordered. So there's much more of a sense of, um, you know, they don't have the money. They have a limited budget. They don't have, the kind of extent, I think there's two things. One is they see the plastic waste that's generated. It doesn't disappear into an incinerator. And the second thing is they're poor and they have to figure out how to, 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 um, you know, save their resources. They, they, they can't afford it. You get a set budget. I mean, it's to the point there that they don't, they don't have enough gloves. And so they hoard their gloves or they, nurses buy their own gloves because the, the hospital ran out of gloves for the month. And so, you know, it's, they don't have enough actually for a lot of this, but what they do have, they know how to conserve. Oof. Well, I'm, I guess I'm happy to hear that, that you're seeing less single use plastic use in the healthcare environment, but if folks are burning it in their homes. I mean, there are other, other issues related to this, this part of the petroleum industry. Um, so, so Lisa, as I was prepping to chat with you, I, well, first of all, I, I 
searched you on Google Scholar and was immediately just impressed and, and also overwhelmed by all of your publications. You are a prolific author um, and, and nursing researcher. And so I'm I'm excited to kind of share some of those with our audience here too. But I mean, even in 2022, you've had 14 publications on there and that's probably not all of them. But, but one article that I came across um, showed up in Biomed Central and their public health um, uh, publication back in 2018. So I, I won't ask you to, you know, like delve back into the depths of your memory for, uh, for any specifics for this. But this piece was about cook stoves. But I imagine as I'm hearing you talk about the plastic piece that there's some overlap there. Um, it gets into the behavioral aspects of of practice change. And um, you were first author in this piece and, and had a few co-authors, Diaz, Artiga, Weinstein, and, and Handley. And one paragraph that I pulled out. So you note that um, studies need to examine current practices, including the entrenched practices that make it difficult to de-implement or abandon you have the, the traditional stove in this case, but maybe it could be traditional practices related to maybe burning plastic, even if it's only traditional in the sense of when these plastics showed up in these communities. Um, but but you and, and the author's reference, these entrenched practices may go beyond intervening with the primary cook and may slip into the realm of other important decision makers, such as the cook's mother-in-law or spouse, even the cleanest stove will not be used if social and structural forces are not acknowledged. So again, I, I know I, I pulled the stove piece back up, but I just wanted to hear what your thoughts are related to some of this, like some of the challenges that you've encountered and, and your colleagues have encountered with the behavioral shift to try to help folks understand how their health is harmed and what some healthier practices could be. Yeah, thanks, Shonda. I think, um, well, I didn't know that I wrote that, but I guess I did. It's been a while. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> I know that article really well because I am still using that. Is a, a uh, It's an implementation science framework developed mm -hmm. by Susan Mickey at University College in London. And we use this, um, it's called COMB and uh, capabilities is the C, opportunities is the O, motivations is the M. And what you need to do is identify the capabilities, opportunities, and motivations to change behavior. So changing the behavior could either be making them do stuff or making them stop do stuff. So implementation science is all about getting people to do stuff and to understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, or why they're not, right? So it's really a, it's a great field for nurses to think about because we do quality improvement. Um, we do evidence-based practice and implementation science is just a step up from that. It's very theoretically based. There are many frameworks and um, theories and uh, concepts that go behind it. But the, so the combi model I use to figure out how to get people to use a liquid petroleum gas stove, which was the purpose of that paper, I'm now using to figure out how to get people to stop burning plastic. So in this new study we have, which is funded by the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, NIHS, 
um, we're working with eight intervention communities to develop um, working groups where we get these women and usually mostly women together every week for 12 weeks. And we talk to them about what plastic does to your health. What is plastic? How, what can we do? Can we re reduce use? Can we recycle? Can we repurpose? We have art projects. Um, they cut, they learn to compost. We have community gardens. I mean, it's the most fun I've ever had in research because these women show up like 50 to 90 women at every class. They're ready to go. They're bringing wheelbarrows of stuff to compost. They are collecting bottles and cans. They've, we've started recycling programs. So we're trying to understand what gets people to implement these projects and adopt these projects and how that would respond to not burning plastic. And so also part of this study is to follow them for a year after to see what they can maintain. So the sustainability. So implementation science is get them to do stuff and make sure that they can keep doing it. So part of it is this sustainability. And another important part of implementation science is the dissemination. So this is what I love. Like you don't only just get people to do stuff, you have to tell other people what they're doing. So disseminating results, scaling up, it's a lot of fun. I'm having, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of stress and it's a lot of fun. So it's very rewarding. Oh, it sounds like it. I mean, if 50 to 90 women are showing up for these, you know, for these sessions, um, like what in your experience, what gets them there? What are they psyched up about? Well, I think some of them are there because, you know, these is rural Guatemala. These are small villages. Um, we make sure that it's the right time for them. Um, they show up because they're curious. They want to see what's going on. Um, but then they get uh, they get some little bit of education. We have slideshows. We do fun activities. We um, and then like when we did the composting thing, they all got to compost. and They got to take a bag of compost back. Um, we've done tree planting. They get trees, little tiny you know saplings. So I mean they get something from it. Um, and uh, you know of course I guess with everything, it's fair to compensate people for their time because they are research participants. So um, we have a raffle at the end and uh, we have like the three top prizes. And so they kind of know that if they assist the course um, eight out of 12 times, they will be put into the drawing for a raffle and we give them quite, a, you know, three big prizes. So they're, so that's also, I think, fun for them because they, people like the idea in, in this part of Guatemala of, you know, having a raffle winner. And that's so culturally, it's very um, like they love it. But I think it's all just fun for them. You know, they just get to interact with their neighbors. They make friends. It's it's like mobilizing a community around stuff. And I think um, women do tend to be quite isolated in their homes. They don't work. They raise their children. They farm. Um, so this is a way we think that we're going to be studying the effect of community mobilization on women's empowerment. So one of my doctoral students is actually looking at that. Uh, my, my doctoral student in nursing um, will be looking at women's empowerment around this study. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, you you got to the compensation piece, to the community piece, the fun. Yeah. Um, mm, I'm it's sure- It's much just better than a, like, you know, I've done so many like stove 
randomized control trials. And in the end, it's like, did it work? Did it not work? Okay, we're done. Like, <laughs> you know, and you're like, oh, I never get to that scale up dissemination policy piece, you know, and this is why I'm really looking forward to this study. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Have you spent time thinking about this in the American culture? Oh yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. I, I, I am the, um, I'm the faculty advisor for a group called a group of students called plastic free Emory. Uh, they have um, created a pledge that's been signed by the president of our university to make Emory plastic free. So they are, I was just at their, they had a, a plastic carnival that they called Plastable. And I went to that and they had all the climate change and plastic groups all together, the sustainability organizations. Um, so they're working on cafeteria practices to reduce plastic. Um, I do think that this idea that we all move to compostable plastic is, uh, is, is a short term good thing, but a long term not, I would actually like to see the dishwasher come back mm -hmm. <laughs> like in the old days where you ate on plates and you threw them into the area where the dishwasher washed them. And we went back to the forks and knives and plates. And there's been some nice stuff out on like Instagram and LinkedIn. I've seen where they say, you know, using one plate four times is, is, you know, is equivalent to one plastic glass, you know, or one plastic plate. So in other words, that, you know, this idea that it's wasteful to use those plates is, is not true. It's the other way around. So I think we should go back to our, so I bring my own cup. I bring my own my own fork and knife, my own, you know, I don't, I reject plastic whenever I can. I tell all my students, this event is plastic free. I tell my faculty, I, I'm, I'm pain. I sit there by our recycling bin and our paper bin and our compost bin. And I start moving things around and, and people come out and I'm like, and they look at me and I'm like, I'm not afraid to sort stuff out. And no shame. I, yeah, I feel like almost standing there and like, can I help you figure out which bin you need to put it in? And I just standing there talking to people. Um, but I haven't quite, I've done that a little bit, but not too much. I'm, I'm in that camp too. Um, when I worked at the, the hospital, <laughs> I, I wasn't afraid to put my hand in those trash cans either and say, this is not in the right bin. Um, but not trying to shame. So I, um, I just Googled plastic free Embry project. So I'll, I'll share that with folks. That's excellent. Thank you. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, certainly best practice sharing and, and storytelling and helping to, yeah, like bring other aspects of sustainable practices in, like you're talking about community and network building. It's not just one thing or the other, you know, health equity comes in here too. And, and certainly when you're working with communities that are faced with, you know, with these products that they need to dispose of, and either that's in the fire ring in their front yard, or it's in the pit, you know, in their behind their house, that's very different from industrialized practices where we supposedly have, you know, re recycling facilities that are removing our waste. I think there's a lot of dark, um, 
you know, mystery that happens in the municipal recycling facilities in this nation, folks think that, um, you know, our products are being disposed of equitably and in a way that's financially sustainable, but oftentimes that ain't the case. So um, it's just not as, it's not as here. So I I want to, I'm glad you took us to the Emory piece because it, um, it, I think it, it wouldn't be a conversation with you as as faculty at Emory and kind of the link with the Nurses Climate Challenge School of Nursing commitment if we didn't go there. So just generally, how are you bringing this content to your students? You you reference you have a DNP student who you know is doing some research of their own, but how does environmental work and um, plastic prevention, air pollution prevention, however you want to take it. How does that show up with your students? Um, well, I wish it it showed up a little bit more. Actually, I I am I direct the PhD program, so my students in the PhD program. But I think the I think we get a lot of uh, students coming in with their own interests. Um, so I haven't found a lot of unfortunately, PhD students that are like psyched about climate change and plastic prevention, of like, not yet. Um, but Is that an open invitation to folks listening? <laughs> yeah, sure. I would yeah. love that. I mean, I had one, I had one a doctoral student, um, Dr. Daniel Smith, who's now at Villanova with Ruth um, uh, McCorm- uh, McCormick Levy, right? And um, he is very much into climate change. So oh, yes. I've, I've had a couple like do things that they're interested in, but um, I wish there were more. I, I'll, I'll say um, something else that happened at Emory. It hasn't, it'll be announced and I don't think it's a problem, you know, to say it here because it will be, but we, um, for about two years, a group of faculty have been convening uh, to, and we created a climate change task force and it's one faculty representative from each school. So we have law, business, um, public health, nursing, medicine, um, and then the Emory College. And we're the climate change faculty task force. And the provost of Emory has given us money to, to create more of a vision for climate change research, education, student flourishing, We've got a three-year mandate. Um, it just we just got the letter uh, last month, so we're we're working on what are we going to do at Emory around climate change. So it's nice because as memory of the member of the Nurses Climate Challenge and on this task force, I'm really glad I'm there. Um, uh, you know, because I I think bridging all of these things, the advisor for the plastic free. Emory and then the climate change task force. And then we have this huge student task force at Emory that was actually, um, you know, went on strike for climate change action recently. Um, so we've got, uh, we're, we're working together now to bring these three groups together to try to just create the impact needed across the campus. That's um, so exciting. Yeah. So what, one of the things I want to do, the School of Medicine has climate change curriculum integrated across the entire School of Medicine at Emory. It is part of their curriculum. And um, I really wanted to do the same for the School of Nursing, not just a one-off, I lecture in one class and that's it. You know, I want, we've got a couple of faculty that do climate change stuff. 
we could get together. In fact, the dean pulled us together during the pandemic, you know, right around when the pandemic was heating up and said, let's do something. And, you know, this is Dean Linda McCauley, who's like an amazing advocate for environmental health and climate change. And then we just, the pandemic, and we kind of stopped. So, you know, I hope that in the next four years, we can really create something, uh, not just in the School of Nursing, but across the campus. Totally. I'm, I'm, thrilled to hear that's happening. Um, it brought to mind right away. It, I mean, you, you said law, business, public health, nursing, medicine. Obviously, there's there's a space there for your actual academic medical center and what this looks like in practice post-education. Um, how are folks integrating this into labs and clinicals and true healthcare leadership? What does that look like, you know, once once folks graduate? And man, oh man, yeah, four years. We're, we're going to be four years closer to 2030, four years closer to mid-century. Um, at, at least I'm I'm personally some of the work at Healthcare Without Harm. I'm seeing a lot of momentum with mm-hmm. our sector in the last probably two years signing on to national and international initiatives like the Health and Human Services Earth Day pledge that came out in alignment with the Paris Climate Accords, the Race to Zero, which is led by the UN. So for institutions like Emory that are both, you know, in the classroom but also in the health realm health delivery realm, there are exemplary challenges and pledges out there that folks can get in a, in alignment with where there's actual federal and, and in some case international support to help guide that action. Um, so I'm eager to hear more about that from you. So perhaps as we close, um, I would love to just invite you to share your vision Briefly, you've been doing this work a long time. What do you see as um, a healthy, equitable future for us all? Oof, that's a big question. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, especially on the eve of elections. <laughs> We're right. a couple of days away from a, a big turn of events. Um, so, uh, you know, I... I feel very encouraged by the mobilization of students um, across the United States. I, I think that they're not going to stop. They're 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 on fire, so to speak. Um, so I think my my vision is that uh, um, you know, and I know I remember that. Um, you know, that they don't want to be the ones in charge, right? They're, you know, they're like, yeah, we're mad, but, you know, don't leave it to us to fix the mess that you all made. I understand that. Um, but they do keep pushing. Um, I would like to see more nurses really, really committed to this idea that we have to create, you know, structures and processes to address the inevitable, um, which is climate change. And I think that we know it's happening um, and we know that, you know, we have to adapt and we have to figure out what to do to, you know, live in the new environment we're living in. But I do, I do have, my vision would be that, you know, 
the nurses in the hospitals, um, which is the majority of nursing, um, but also the nurses in, in schools um, that work with kids and the nurses in community clinics that work with, you know, uh, patients that are going to walk out onto the street in a minute, you know, that all of that, that, that we become aware of how to counsel our patients um, and also how to take on our individual practices, you know, to be good citizens, right? To bring our metal thermos to work and um, take up, I, you know, I think you're right about healthcare without harm. Um, in Europe, they're doing a lot of work around like plastic audits and figuring out how to reduce plastic because we know plastic is produced by the fossil fuel industry. Plastic is, you know, 8% of plastic is recycled. Most of it is incinerated. It's incinerated in poor communities. So, you know, tying in plastic to climate change, things that people can do to reduce the load of both is kind of my where I'll be working for the next, uh, I don't know, for many, many years to come, because I don't think this, this problem is not going to be solved soon. Um, but so my immediate goal is to get the curriculum into the nursing education at Emory. The long-term goal is to keep working across the sectors around this. Magnificent. Well, I, I think we heard there a call for PhD students that want to do work in alignment with you. We just heard you're not going to retire anytime soon. So thank goodness we need, uh, we need footsteps to follow in. Um, well, Dr. Lisa Thompson, in your your research every single day, you're demonstrating how this can practically be done with real humans in whatever circumstances they've been dealt with. And um, I certainly look forward to continuing to hear from you and, and read more about the change that you're making all over the world. So thanks for talking with me today. And um, thank you for all the work that you do and all the inspired nurses that uh, can indeed follow in your footsteps. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And I want to say the same to you. You you are doing great work with Healthcare Without Harm and the Nurses Climate Challenge. It is like something I've been waiting for for years. So thank you for the work that you do mm. and for your reach. <laughs> I'm honored. Thank you. Thank you to Dr. Shanda Demarest and Dr. Lisa Thompson. Our situation with plastic sometimes seems more overwhelming than climate change, and they are sides of the same coin. Good on you, Dr. Lisa Thompson, for diving into this stubborn challenge, and thank you both for the conversation. Thank you all for listening, and please check us out at envirn.org. Please subscribe, comment, and share the podcast. Talk to you next time. <laughs>